from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor. Thank you for downloading this podcast, whether you're on the Jubilee Line in London, a Metrobus in Johannesburg, or the New York subway. This week, we're talking about MasterCard taking a stake in Africa's MTN, and we're talking about the huge opportunity to make it easier to move money between different African countries. So although the corridors between Africa and other uh, big economies are often great. The corridors between African countries aren't so easy because of the lack of infrastructure and the complexity of regulation. So exciting news. Our second story is about fintech fronted shutting its doors. And we talked about the sad demise of the UK fintech that was trying to make it easier for renters as they moved from one property to another, but needed to make a deposit to their new property before they got it back from their old property. And Irish customers have been queuing up for free money at Bank of Ireland ATMs after a technical glitch meant that people could take out more money than they had in their account. But of course, the sad thing is they're going to have to pay it back. So there's going to be some unhappy customers in Ireland um, over the next few days realising that that money they hoped was free is in fact not going to be free. So we get into all this and much more on today's show. We'll be back after these messages. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? This is standing yeah. moment. We are bringing After Dark to the Village Underground in London on the 20th of September. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com slash After Dark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome to episode 773 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined for a Fintech Insider debut by Mary Wisniewski, Editor-at-Large and Director of Content at Cornerstone Advisors. Thank you so much for being here, Mary. What can you tell our listeners about you and Cornerstone Advisors, please? Sure. So a little bit about me. I'm just a longtime fintech reporter. I used to write for American Banker, Bank Innovation, and Bankrate. And I joined Cornerstone earlier this year to help shape their content and content strategy. And Cornerstone offers consulting services to banks and credit unions in the U.S., as well as produces fintech research. Fantastic. Well, welcome. 
We also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Ruth Fox-Blader, partner at Anthemis. Thank you so much for joining us again, Ruth. What should our newer listeners know about you and about Anthemis? Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. Um, well, as you said, I'm a partner at Anthemis. Anthemis is a sector-focused uh, fintech and insurtech venture capital fund. Uh, I run our investment practice and I look after uh, some of our actively deploying investment strategies, both at the early stage and uh, in growth. Fantastic. Well, thank you and welcome back. And I'm also delighted to welcome another returning guest uh, back to the show, Wiza Jalakasi, Director of Africa Market Development at eBanks. Welcome back to the show, Wiza. What should our audience know about you and your new role at eBanks? Thank you so much, Benjamin. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, so at eBanks, uh, we are a, a global payments processor uh, with a focus of 18 markets in total in Latin America and Africa. Uh, essentially, if you're a global merchant or a large business that has a need to either collect payments or make disbursements uh, in some of the most exciting emerging markets in the world, uh, eBanks is the premier uh, provider for those solutions. Well, fantastic. Congratulations on your new role and Thank you. Well, let's get into the show. So our first story was reported in TechCrunch and various other places, which is that MasterCard is to purchase a minority stake in MTN's $5.2 billion fintech business. So MasterCard has agreed to buy a minority stake in the fintech division of MTN Group, which is Africa's largest mobile phone provider, which values the division at $5.2 billion. MTN announced in a statement on the company's half-year financial performance that the investment will be closed subject to the usual closing conditions. The deal will be structured as a commercial partnership on payments and remittances, using MasterCard's infrastructure to develop throughout Africa. For MasterCard, the deal will help to deepen its presence on the continent in digital payments, which is viewed as a high-margin, low-capital expenditure and rapidly growing business. Um, Weezer, it seems logical to come to you uh, first. So thank you for, for joining us. Um, is this a big win for MTN? Is this a win for, for MasterCard, um, a win for the wider ecosystem? What, what did you think of this news? Yeah, I, I think it's actually pretty uh, exciting and encouraging for the ecosystem as a whole. Um, I think it's important for us to understand the history of where uh, MasterCard is coming from specifically with regards to cross-border remittances. So let me take you back to uh, 2008, where a business called HomeSend was established as a <clears throat> joint venture between Bix and eServe Global. Uh, eventually, MasterCard took a controlling stake in that business in the year 2013. Um, and then at the end of 2021, they fully acquired it outright. And that business uh, that was known as HomeSend is now pretty much the predominant offering of MasterCard's cross-border B2B services. Um, on the flip side of that coin, MTN has also been trying its hand uh, at remittances. They launched an application called Homeland, so distinct from HomeSend. These are two different <laughs> things, but I guess there's something about the nomenclature. Uh, so Homeland was launched um, in around 2019 in partnership with MFS Africa, uh, targeted predominantly at European um, residents to send money back home to 25 uh, MTN opcos in Africa. 
Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though uh, Homeland was a success. Um, since it's launched, I was looking at the latest stats. I think there's only got like 50,000 downloads in the Google Play Store. You can't even access the website uh, for uh, Homeland on MTN. The SSL certificate expired 42 days ago. So this suggests to me that uh, it perhaps wasn't a very successful venture. Now, uh, it's quite clear that there's appetite on both sides from MTN and MasterCard to try and solve for cross-border remittances. And where I think MasterCard has the upper hand here is in the infrastructure that is required for the intra-Africa remittance piece. I think if you're trying to send money from Europe to Africa, I can name like 15 different ways right now. But if you're trying to send money uh, from Malawi to Rwanda, uh, it can be quite challenging. And uh, the card networks, uh, MasterCard uh, specifically, has invested heavily in the regulatory infrastructure that is required to facilitate these sort of intra-Africa transactions on, on an on-demand basis. They do it for their merchants, so that's why you can come here to Johannesburg with your Monzo card, tap it at POS, and it just works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the telcos don't have that uh, level of depth of understanding of the regulatory infra in order to do uh, those cross-border remittances. But they do have the best last mile distribution in the industry by far. So I think this is just a natural coming together of two very big uh, pieces of, of this puzzle for the intra-Africa remittance play. And hopefully um, MTN will be able to take advantage of this infrastructure to distribute products that can really help um, develop the sector as a whole. Uh, it, I think it's also worth noting that uh, telcos recently have been diving deep into uh, virtual cards. Um, so you have players like MTN basically enabling their customers to uh, request for virtual cards to make payments online. And I think this partnership will only further deepen um, that sort of engagement. Can I ask you a really quick and obvious question? For, for, for some of our listeners who are maybe not so familiar with Africa or Big place, obviously, <laughs> huge place. Well, why do telcos? Why why do they play such a big role in in a number of African markets? Why are telcos a, a big player? I mean, I think the answer is probably fairly straightforward. But yeah, it's just because of the significance of what a mobile phone means, right? In other parts of the world, it's a device for communication or access to internet. Uh, but here on the continent, it can be a lifeline. It can be the difference between having access to certain things and certain opportunities and not having that access. So it already had a significant role with the advent of telecoms, and now with the convenience of mobile money, it's just a thing that you're expected uh, to have. And the services work, they're reliable, uh, they have really great distribution, and they're generally ubiquitous. So those three things, I think, really drive the adoption. Ruth, thank you. Ruth, I'd love to bring you in here. I mean, we we, we see MasterCard and, and, and Visa and so on making quite a few of these kind of acquisitions and investments and so on. Um, how, how significant do you think that is as sort of part of their strategy um, does it make sense for them to do these kind of deals? Uh, are other players losing out when sort of Visa and MasterCard come in and do these big deals? What do you think of this? Well, I think from the, their perspective, the perspective of uh, Visa and MasterCard, it makes an absolute ton of sense to do these deals. Uh, I, my experience working on the African continent is primarily in Francophone Africa with a company that I invested in called Yajara, which is an awesome company and an app dedicated to facilitating access to investment and savings. And what what I would say is that their infrastructure is extremely spotty. I, as, as Wiza said, it makes uh, absolute 
tons of sense to be going through telcos in the early days of mobile money. Africa was able to leapfrog the developed world because of its absolute need to access better mechanisms for money transfer, payments, and um, and you know really just general digitalization. And so the mobile providers and and telcos have always played a really big role in banking generally in Africa. And there's still a tremendous amount of need to harden that infrastructure. But I think that what you know, large incumbent financial institutions will find difficulty with is execution in the context of the specific geography where they're working. So these partnerships allow them to access some of the best teams with the in-market, on-the-ground knowledge and understanding of the culture and the execution challenges and opportunities. And I think that we will continue to see uh, these incumbent institutions take advantage, particularly in places where, um, you know, there are so many, so many huge opportunities, huge populations in need of basic financial services, and uh, as well as just, you know, kind of the sophistication of founders on the African continent, which is growing, you know, which is increasing and where there's really a very strong community now. And I think that there are just some incredibly sophisticated interlocutors for these organizations. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me. Really, really interesting. And you're right. But I mean, payments is all about all about partnerships, isn't it? And, and as Weezer was saying, there's, there's a lot of regulation to navigate if you're trying to do payments between multiple different countries. Um, Mary, I'd love to bring you in. Uh, do we do we ever see um, telcos in the states um, getting involved in in money? I mean, obviously there's Apple Pay and and, and so on. But do you, is, have any of the telcos tried to sort of come up with any kind of solutions for Americans, perhaps particularly underbanked or unbanked Americans? Have you ever have you seen that kind of thing happening? Yeah. So I would say the conversation around that was really pricking up a handful of years ago. But it's like. I was thinking on this and it's like, you know, it's been a quieter story minus Apple, which I do want to get into if we consider it the telecom company. But um, as it happens today, I just noticed I'm looking to the right because I pulled it up. There's a neobank called Zolve that launched a mobile service because um, it partnered with something called Gigs. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's a small example. It's for it's catered to people who just moved to the U.S. because I haven't really seen this kind of thing recently. But there's also T-Mobile Money as another example. But I think it plays out a bit differently here in the U.S. There's so many bank accounts here and a lot of them now they're like the fees are so much better than they were years ago. So in terms of access, it's 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 a lot better than even a decade ago. Um, but certainly not everybody wants that traditional experience. But I do want to bring up Apple, Apple savings in particular. I mean, again, this is kind of a different example, but they hit more than 10 billion in deposits in, in the last couple of weeks. And I just think that's a remarkable, a remarkable story. Certainly not for the unbanked, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there, actually. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, Weezer, let me bring it back to you just to close off this story. Is this is this just sort of an unalloyed good news? Is this just really good news? It's good news for MasterCard. It's good news for MTN. It's good news for customers. Does anybody lose out here? Does uh, does this make it more difficult for other players in the in the ecosystem, or is this basically just just good news all round, Weezer? No, I think it certainly introduces uh, an element of competition to the over the top uh, cross border remittance and mobile money players. 
Um, so you've got several, including Nala Money, uh, Sendwave, uh, Chipper Cash. Uh, I think if the telcos are able to offer a service of equivalent quality at a better price, then some of those markets are, are certainly at risk. Well, it'll be very, very interesting to see how how this uh, how, how this plays out because um, it's such a big opportunity, as you were saying, to make it easier for people to move money between countries um, because that remittance corridor to, to, to Europe is useful, but there's so much trade between African countries, anything that makes that smoother is going to improve the lives of lots of people and businesses. Okay, let's move on to our next story, um, which is that a startup founded by former Apple and Monzo executives wanting to disrupt the retail market, sorry, the rental market, has closed. So this was reported in tech.eu. So Fronted, which is a which was a UK startup founded in 2019, is closing down. Fronted was set up by Chief Executive Jamie Campbell, formerly of open banking firm Bud, Simon Vans Kalina, previously of Monzo, and Anthony Mann, a former Apple executive. Fronted was using open banking and other technologies to offer credit to renters to help them finance deposits. Uh, the fintech had received more than £20 million in funding, and it was hoping to offer renters cheaper and more sophisticated options um, than their existing choices like credit cards and overdrafts. Fronted is closing because it was hit by rising capital costs, which went through the roof late last year, according to Campbell. So we asked you, our listeners, on the uh, 11FS LinkedIn page, can financial services or fintech solve the issues in the rental market? And 61% of you said, no, they can't. 25% yes said they can't. Yes, they can. And 14% of you were unsure. Um, so this is a sad story. We're often reporting about, you know, hopeful and positive stories about how fintech's making a big difference in the world. Here is a fintech that has has struggled. Ruth, perhaps I can bring you in first. What what's kind of do you know what's gone wrong in this specific example, or maybe more widely, what's what are some of the headwinds that are hitting um, some fintechs today? Yeah. So you know, don't get too sad because I think that this is, you know, possibly the beginning of uh, a bit of a market correction that we've been uh, waiting for. And we're seeing more broadly in venture capital, which isn't to say that, you know, great companies have no prospects or that we're not going to see huge, enormous, even 2021 style funding rounds. We certainly will continue to see them. But, you know, the past, I would say five years or so, we have seen uh, a sort of unusually large proportion of companies not failing uh, or sort of graduating to the next fundraising round if you look at the historical data. So, you know, why does any one company fail? Why does any one startup fail? It's a little bit like the beginning of Anna Karenina. You know, all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Like, you know, there's the carnage just feels different no matter what. Certainly, I'm sure that part of the story is, as the founder reported, we have had unprecedented interest rate rises in an unprecedentedly short period of time. And it has been extremely challenging for anyone who has relied on some form of debt capacity or is, you know, can't raise the the, the rates that they're charging consumers at the same rate that their debt is rising. It's just kind of simple arithmetic. Um, these macro trends really do matter. They matter much more in fintech. And you know, it's it's not entirely surprising. Um, in terms of the specifics, you know, I as as an investor, 
Uh, and as someone who's worked with startups for a long time, I don't dance on anybody's graves. Uh, it's always sad to hear that, that people are throwing in the towel. Whereas in the past couple of years, it was just a little bit more of a novelty story. And, you know, we were all digging into the gossip about why things failed because it felt like failure was improbable. And I think that we're probably entering an era where, um, actually sort of outsized success is, is much more improbable, which is, which is what it has always historically been. Mary, I'd love to. I'd love to bring you in. What, th- thank you, thank you, Ruth. Um, what, what I should have explained in the in the overview is what what Fronted was trying to do was help renters who were moving from one property to another property because in the UK you typically have to make a deposit um, to your landlord and then you don't tend to get that back and then you're having to make a deposit on your new flat while you're still waiting for the old one to come back and so it was trying to lend to sort of bridge that gap. Um, my question to you, Mary, is: Do you think maybe something like that is maybe too small to 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 really create a viable business? Um, have you started to see the same thing happening in the states or elsewhere, where you know some fintechs just you know, they got a good idea, but it's not a great idea, and it's maybe not enough? Um, are you seeing any themes like that? Well, certainly yes to that last question, but to to this problem that they were trying to solve, I know I came across a startup last year that was doing something similar in the U.S. I wish I could remember the name, but it's escaping me. They were working with Alloy, um, though, and. This is a real problem. You know, I live in LA. I lived in New York before. Like the amount you have to put down for deposit is outrageous at times, especially if you've just moved to the country and you don't have a credit history. It's like a shocking amount of money. And most people in the US do not, I mean, study after study shows that like people don't even have like a thousand dollars and um, the rent payment could be way more. So like they're, they're solving or they tried to solve a problem that is certainly here. Um, but clearly it didn't work. So there's always, I mean, the currents aren't so great here, right? So like, it's not great right yeah. now, but certainly I think even if the problem wasn't able to be solved right now or even a little bit solved, but like, it's still a big problem. Someone's going to need to solve it at some point. This is an opportunity. Maybe it needs to be part of a sort of a, a bigger thing, a wider thing to, to really make it make it viable. Um, Weezer, do you recognize that? that that particular problem in 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 south africa um i mean i realize you know it's a a very different type of economy um but you have that same sort of challenge of people needing short-term loans um as they sort of shift from one thing to another um is, is that where mobile money is becoming successful as you know you start doing some loans off the back of that I mean, there are certainly solutions that uh, enable people to access short-term credit in this way. But in South Africa specifically, the bank infrastructure is pretty mature and uh, people tend to either save for their necessary deposits and then get them refunded and move on to the next place. Or um, they would get a loan facility from the bank, t- typically to buy more so than to rent. There are some other geographies like Nigeria where you might have to like pay rent upfront for a year, right? And that's wow. when it gets... Yeah, super crazy. And you see um, businesses such as Spleet, S-P-L-E-E-T, um, which is a fintech doing exactly what um, these guys in the UK were doing. And they've seen um, significantly, I would say so far, a greater degree of success. They certainly haven't shut down. But obviously, the factors are different. The duration of the deposit is essentially much longer. And that al- allows you to underwrite the credit in a different way. And then also, I think uh, generally, you can price 
for these things a bit more cheaper in our markets. The uh, functions of cost are significantly different than what exists in, in other parts of the world. Super sad to, to hear about this. Um, I have a lot of empathy for founders. I know that journey. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that this team is going to continue building and they will find success somewhere I'm, else. I'm, I'm sure they will. Um, Ruth, within a sort of VC firm, do you have a sort of process? I mean, this, you know, if you have a big portfolio, you must have the odd problem from time to time in companies that just don't make it for some reason. Do you have a sort of a process, a way of dealing with that when you just get to the point where you say, you know, this, this, just, this thing isn't going to work? You know, personally, all of my companies are successful, but, uh, you know, I've heard a thing or two. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, I mean... So, so I, okay, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to underscore what we said and, and just, you know, reify Th there is, it's always easy Monday morning quarterback to say, oh, this was way too small of an idea. It's a feature, not a product that, you know, like a wedge product can be tiny. And if you ha have good, a good disciplined attitude towards cash conservation and excellent execution capabilities, you can build a great business. So I don't think anything's written in advance. Um, Yes, we do have an attitude or a, a posture when things start not going well. And that posture is really uh, based on our fiduciary responsibility, you know, uh, to our LPs and then also to the shareholders, depending on if we're directors of the business. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, your fiduciary responsibility as a director of a business transitions from being um, towards the shareholders uh, to towards the creditors. And so when it becomes clear that the company might not be able to meet its fiduciary responsibilities or its financial responsibilities towards, um, you know, it's, for example, to make payroll to its creditors, uh, the, it is the board's, it's incumbent upon the board to start thinking about things like uh, an asset sale um, or winding down the business. Um, you know, there's a long, typically uh, a fairly kind of long death spiral before that happens. And there are opportunities to sort of circumvent worst case scenarios. Um, you know, it really, there, it's, it's a moment where there needs to be a high level of com of communication amongst the board uh, and with the founders. And I think, you know, where founders and, and board members really need to be um, quite lucid and, uh, you know, self-aware about the, challenges ahead and what the best opportunities are to uh, meet fiduciary responsibilities. It's, it's a difficult situation, but uh, as I said, I think it's, it's not unprecedented, certainly, and it's something that investors who haven't encountered it previously, who maybe are, are newer to venture capital, are going to encounter uh, probably a bit more over the coming months and years. It's definitely a, a difficult situation. And I, one of the things I was very happy to read about was that the, the founders have tried really hard to try and help all their employees get into in, into new into new positions. Okay, Mary, I'm going to fire the last quick question at you. Um, one of the things I noticed in, in a couple of the articles was it was all about, hey, this is a former Apple person, this is a former Monzo person and so on. Do you think um, that maybe some of us are sort of participants in the industry or observers of the industry or whatever overrate experience of big companies? Uh, does it matter if somebody's worked at, I don't know, a Goldman Sachs or a PayPal? Or, um, is that relevant? Um, I would say it's not relevant. Um, it's all about the person, but people love a backstory of a good brand, right? So like, I'd say, you know, the, 
the perk of working for any of those companies is like, sure, you're gonna you're going to discover problems that need to be solved because of your customer base. And so that's really eye opening. But like just because you worked at XYZ does not make you good, does not make you talented. And I'm not saying that about those people, but it's like <laughs> like that is not impressive to me. It's like, who are you? What do you actually do? And like who you've worked for it means nothing to me. And I've personally worked with some people who've written at some really big brands. I'm like, man, where their ego is bad. And it's just like, okay, so like, no, it's not, it's not the brand you've worked with. It's who you are and it's what you're capable of doing. And I think it's like, how curious are you about like finding out things, discovering things? Fantastic. Okay, well, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider Watching Insider 11FS Spotlight 11FS Explores Open Mic Night After Dark Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters and live events we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs then chat to our team at sponsors at 11FS.com or visit 11FS.com to find out more Long live the community. Welcome back. Um, before we get into the second half of the news, a quick note that uh, the next edition of our After Dark live shows has just been announced. Uh, join, if you live in London or nearby, join us for a live recording of the FinTech Insider news show, complete with special guests and your favourite hosts, as well as games, food, drinks and networking on the night too. We'll be bringing After Dark to the Village Underground in London on September the 20th. Click on the link in the podcast to grab your free ticket. Right, well, let's get back into the news. So, introducing Roger, a new online bank for military recruits. This was reported in Forbes and various other media. American community bank Citizens Bank of Edmond has launched a digital-first unit built for military service members. Oklahoma-based Citizens has worked with banking technology vendor Nimbus on the offshoot called Roger, which is available now to American military members around the globe. In interviews, Citizens Bank of Edmund CEO Jill Castilla has claimed that as many as 75% of new recruits entering basic training do not have a banking relationship. The new outfit includes features including account locking, roundup savings, and early paycheck access. Um, Mary, I think I'll bring you in first. Has Citizens Bank of Edmund spotted a real problem to solve here? Yes. And I want to go back to my earlier comment. So I just trash talk people's background. But here's a perfect example of someone who is killer and it's Jill. And so like what stands out here is the person who's seen this brought to life. Jill is a remarkable banker and I am very bullish on Roger just by having her at the helm. Um, so, you know, they just launched. So those features you just mentioned, certainly you can see them at other accounts. So they're not remarkable, but you know, it's day one. And again, like Jill is one to watch. So one of the things that struck me about this was the, the United States is a little bit unusual in having some military banks already, banks like uh, Navy Federal Credit Union, USAA. Um, you, you know, Ruth, if, if you look at this, you know, is this is this sort of USAA or Navy Federal Credit Union or someone 
missing a trick. I mean, to hear that 75% of new recruits entering basic training don't have a banking account feels like the banks that are already focused on on the military are maybe missing a trick somewhere. I think there's also a question of a demographic shift of who is joining the military and, um, you know, how the how the military functions in the U.S. more recently than when those banks were founded. USAA has historically been involved in a lot of fintech innovation. Um, they they worked on numerous fintech partnerships and kind of early fintech understanding that their um, members had special needs and particularly needs around, um, you know, moving money and cross-border stuff. And I, I remember there was a, you know, pretty long time ago, um, an acquisition that they did of MyTech solutions to allow for, um, you know, uh, long distance check caching and, and things like that. So, you know, these, I, I think that, um, that, that, that they're less maybe missing a trick, although I'm sure they're challenged in terms of their innovation agendas and are working hard to, you know, close those those gaps as all incumbent institutions are. Um, but really, you know, we see uh, the, a demographic shift over time of the U.S. population, which um, joins the military and is recruited in, in the, into the military, sometimes out of high school, as coming um, predominantly from underprivileged neighborhoods, um, you know, places where, where people already have quite limited access to uh, financial services. And so I think probably what you're seeing is, you know, we abolished the draft and we have a, a population of the military, which, you know, uh, is, comes largely from, um, you know, a demographic uh, an underbanked and sometimes unbanked demographic, and you know, there's, there's, that's the critical insight, which is, um, you know, kind of founding the uh, upon which this business is founded. I think it's an interesting one, and we'll see how it goes. Really, really insightful on on the sort of changes in the in the kinds of people joining. Um, Weezer, I'd, I'd love to bring you in here on. Um, Mary's already sort of raved about Jill Castillo, but. Um, does, does people's sort of lived experience play a part in building out a successful product? If, you've, if this is something you've personally experienced, do you think that makes, helps founders succeed when they've kind of got empathy for the, the customers that they're um, trying to serve? Yeah, I, th- I think it can play a significant role. And looking at Jill's history, she entered the military at 19. So she's got quite a bit of uh, lived experience around that. I think it really helps to uh, develop their empathy muscle to really understand the root of the needs of the users. And that can be a hack to sort of like really growing your, your first adopters quite quickly. And it does seem as though, you know, despite the presence of military focused banks, there still is a gap. You look at those numbers, they seem a bit high. And coming in, with a digitally focused onboarding process, which is quick and easy, I think that could be a really, really big win to initially capture um, a good subset uh, of users. And then, you know, whether they uh, succeed in the long term is a function of like what other products and services can they offer those users. But if I had to make a bet, I wouldn't bet against Jill because she knows exactly what the challenges look like. Seems like we've got quite a few Jill fans on that on, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Mary, what's the what's the sort of state of niche banking um, now? You know, we've had a number of um, sort of di- new digital banks focused on particular communities um, springing up in the states over the over the past few years. Uh, do you think there's still a really strong opportunity there, um, or do you feel that's sort of starting to play out now? 
Well, I do. Of course, it's it's gotten a bit grimmer here. Um, you know, I think the last more than a year ago, people finally, or observers finally, settled on like interchange fee is not enough to survive on, and some of these business models are becoming not what they aspired to be, like touting itself as a financial health thing, and perhaps not being it because because the business model. Um, and you know, if you're not, if you're not properly funded, even harder, I think, you know, you're, you're seeing crashes and burns, but, and you're also seeing some people believe that, you know, in the collapse of SVP, it's like, mm. is this another risk? Cause every, everyone's similar as the customer, for example. But I think, I think to the point, um, back to the Jill and Roger, and, and having a lived experience and having empathy, like there are so, so much need to solve so many problems. And like, if you, if you have a target, if you know your audience and you work at solving the problem in that way, I think there's still a lot of opportunity and there's still a lot of need. So, okay. Fun question. Let's imagine there was an Anthemis fund that was going to fund three uh, three new niche banking propositions. What what would each of your choices be if you had if you could set up a new niche bank? Um, which which uh, community would you choose, uh, Weezer? Um, Africans in the diaspora. I think that's what I'd go for. This sort of kind of exists already, but it's to specific countries. There's not a continent wide solution yet. Nice, uh, Mary. Um, I'm going to go, this, my answer would change by the day, but you know, I'm in Hollywood. There's been ongoing strikes. So I'm going with actors. I'm going with cash flow problems for actors and writers because it is a big struggle here right now. And, and Ruth is the person who actually has to make this kind of decision. <laughs> Where do you see opportunity? I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to go way more niche and just something closer to my heart because we've all decided that you know, founders' backgrounds really matter to the success and the empathy. I'm going to go with people whose favorite movie is The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. <laughs> um, and, you know, there might be some other, like, Venn diagram of other movies that might work, uh, but that's that's the one I'm going to go with. Yeah. So you brought in The Fugitive and Tolstoy. Oh, maybe, hang on a sec. Vin Diesel fans. <laughs> yes, Vin Diesel fans, Neobank. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. We get on board, everybody. Customer number one. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. May I introduce you to the fugitive? <laughs> Just kidding. Okie dokie. Um, let's move on to uh, our, our last big story of the week, um, which is a debit card that lets you fund scientific research while you spend. And this is reported in the next web. So, Speaking of niche banks, the UK's first bank account dedicated to accelerating science and technology is set to launch next month. Science Card is the brainchild of Daniel Beriswell, who came up with the idea during his PhD in biomedical engineering at University College London. The fintech is looking to bridge the gap between the UK's financial sector and underfunded research projects with a debit card. Science Card will function as a regular MasterCard debit card, but will allow customers to explore and contribute towards a range of UK university-led scientific research projects through their daily spending or direct investment. The app will let users track the progress of their chosen research projects towards their funding targets and read reports of how these projects are progressing. 
Once a project meets its funding target, the funds are then allocated straight to the research under the direction of the university. So maybe first question, um, would anyone in the panel actually use something like this if it was available to them? If there was a science card in, in, in your home country, would would you use it, do you think? I would not, but I'm just, um, I'm not the right audience, I don't think. Who is the right audience? Gifford. I, I think they need. I think they need to wrap it in a Vin Diesel <laughs> fan wrapper, and I think they're going to get a lot more, lot more bites. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's there's a segment for this, right? Um, I have a cousin who's a PhD who studied in the UK, and like a lot of their work is is really research oriented. What I'm not sure about is how much do I need to spend in order to fund a project? The, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about the unit economics there, but I think the interest generally is there, especially uh, among the medical community. I think as an investor, I'm a terrible candidate for this. Um, you know, it's a real nightmare, the idea of like unvetted scientific research projects and my money sort of going towards those things. So in seriousness, um, I think that there's a little bit of a maybe complexity problem from a human interest perspective. I, I'd love to see something like this get off the ground and prove me wrong. And, you know, I've been wrong before, but uh, just feels maybe maybe like this niche might might be too small. Yeah, I agree. I, I love the idea in principle. I love the idea of funding research and I love the idea of people sort of being able to kind of see where their money goes. But to your point, Weezer, yeah, what's the what's the unit economics of this? Where I mean, because interchange fees in the UK are a lot lower in the, in than in the States, for example. I mean, this is you're gonna have to spend an awful lot of money, aren't you, to fund anything much? Let's give it to all the woke billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> There is the Sorry, answer. Sorry, what woke billionaires? <laughs> <laughs> there is the other answer. <laughs> I will say, though, something I do like, and it's a larger trend or an emerging trend, is connecting the spend to values. There was a startup that launched in the U.S. called Allo or something like this, and this is more of a mindfulness, but it's like an app that lets you, you know, pick how often you want to interact with your transaction transactions, but you're picking your values like, oh, health is my value. So you're like connecting your spend to your physical well-being or your social ambitions, etc. So I think like we broaden this up, connecting the values to the money is an interesting, um, it's an interesting concept. So does this, is this, I mean, is this then more of a sort of feature than a, than a, than a product? I mean, Ruth, you were sort of bringing me up a little bit earlier for, for, for maybe being too negative on, on, on fronted. Um, but <clears throat> If you took this idea and enable people to fund a different variety of things, to sort of Mary's point, could that then start to become more viable? I just want to apologize to all the billionaires for calling them not woke. <laughs> we have we have a huge billionaire audience on this on this show. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. Um, so maybe the last sort of serious question then. Um, is there an opportunity to sort of create better relationships between financial services and other industries? Because, you know, the idea behind this of trying to get um, the sort of financial services industry or, or financial services customers helping to fund science is, is you know, is a, is a great idea. Um, is that maybe the opportunity? Um, Weezer, do you see an opportunity there to, to sort of try and get financial services more connected to other industries that are needed to you know, drive economies forward? 
Yeah, definitely. I think the the idea makes sense, uh, but I have concerns around how small uh, some of these communities are and how viable the matchmaking marketplace could be. Something that just hit me as we were discussing this uh, would be, uh, what if Kickstarter was to launch a card like this so that your rewards that you earn can be used to fund your favorite new innovation? I think there's a big enough community in Kickstarter and Kickstarter-like communities such that you could kind of squeeze a business model out of there. So I think the the intention is great, but perhaps the size of the various communities is really going to be the determining factor for success here. Oh, I also think that's a really great idea. I also think that the limiting factor is kind of the customer acquisition and distribution. In seriousness, people love rewards. You know, they could think and talk about them all day long and rack them up. And, you know, I think that um, traditional companies like Amex have found um, a lot of success in letting people, you know, move their rewards dollars in different directions. So maybe it's more of a joint venture than a than a company. All right. Thank you. Um, well, let's let's wrap up um, this discussion and wish Science Card a lot of success. The, the, the idea is great. It's going to be challenging to to, to execute, um, but the intent is fantastic. So, wish them wish them every success. Okay. Now, for a brief section of the show, uh, we call Big Click Energy, which is a quick fire roundup of some of the more clickworthy news this week. We only have one story for me today, which is that the UK is launching a one billion pound fintech fund to compete with Silicon Valley. This was reported in CNBC and various other places. So the UK has created an investment vehicle to back growth stage fintech companies until they can go public in a bid to bolster Britain's global image as a fintech investment hub. Backed by MasterCard, Barclays and the London Stock Exchange, the Fintech Growth Fund aims to invest between £10 million and to £100 million into fintech companies, ranging from consumer-focused challenger banks and payment tech groups to financial infrastructure and regulatory technology. The fund, which is being advised by UK investment bank Peel Hunt, looks to support companies at the growth stage of their funding cycle as they seek Series C rounds and above. So very happy to see this. I think probably the biggest benefit will be through some of the sort of networking and the relationships that some of the people involved in this fund have rather than necessarily the capital directly because there are plenty of other sources of capital or, or a number of other sources of capital. But anything that can help um, companies scale up and become successful uh, businesses is always very, very welcome. Um, and it's been a tough time for many fintechs. So if this new fund helps, fantastic. Uh, is it really going to enable the UK to compete with Silicon Valley anytime soon? I'm not sure. Um, but it's a good step in the right direction and lots of little steps take you a long way on a journey. Okay, so now it's time for the and finally section of the show. A look at something a little bit more offbeat from the news this week. And this week's story comes from Ireland, where people have been rushing to ATMs after a windfall from the Bank of Ireland's app glitch. This was reported in Reuters and various other places. So the Bank of Ireland has now fixed technical problems that allowed some customers to withdraw or transfer funds above what was in their accounts. This came after social media posts about the glitch led to queues at ATMs. Among other issues, a glitch with the bank's online app let customers with low balances or no money in their account to transfer up to a thousand euros into a linked account with another digital banking app, such as Revolut. The money could then be withdrawn via an ATM. 
Ireland's Gardaí, the police, were deployed in certain areas to handle the situation, with sizable queues forming up multiple ATMs up and down the country. Irish Twitter or X users were quick to jump on the news with memes referencing sitcom Father Ted's The Money Was Resting in My Account line to shots from Fergie's glamorous music video. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> wonderful story. What do you think, Mary? Do you think people realize they'll have to pay it back? I don't think so. I think, well, for, I mean, people need money, right? So, like, here's an opportunity. Boom. I think you're just thinking, let me grab this little sweet surprise, right? Like, I don't think you're thinking about, do I have to pay it back? I think you're thinking, oh, good. I, I need money and I can get some. Yeah, it's future Mary's problem. If you have to do <laughs> yeah, that. future, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is this a, is this a kind of a victimless crime? I mean, who? I mean, you know, what, what do you think, Ruth? Who? What happens here? I think if the banks have had any illusion about you know improving their um, customer perception, they should look at those lines at the ATMs of people you know kind of having no moral compunction about robbing them. Um, you know, it's pretty bad, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, so, so Bank of Ireland is saying, you know, that this will be on people's accounts, right? So people who've taken the money out, you know, that they're going to have to pay it back. So suddenly there's a whole bunch of people with, um, I suppose, unauthorized overdrafts. So um, <laughs> they've got themselves a bit of a problem there, haven't they? Okay, so uh, let's let's wrap up with, let's imagine your bank handed you a thousand dollars, a thousand euros, um, for free, <laughs> for a guilt-free one-off uh, purchase, uh, what what would you do um, with with that thousand, um, uh, Ruth? Oh man, I would just assume I had to pay it back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Weezer, what would you do? I, I think Ruth has worked in financial services for too long. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, I'd probably just like go uh, get on a flight to Cape Town for a weekend. Um, I'm at a point in life where I have pretty much every material thing I've ever reasonably desired. So extremely grateful for that. And the rest is just experiences. That's nice. Um, Mary, how about you? Okay, well, I love surprise money where I feel like I can do something very indulgent, but practical side of me wants a new bookshelf, <laughs> less practical side of me, which is very pronounced. Um, yes, would just book a trip somewhere um, immediately. It's, it's quite, a, quite a bookshelf for $1,000. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Why did I ever have to see it? <laughs> I have to say, I'm, I'm tempted by Weezer's trip to Cape Town, but it's rather more expensive from London than from Johannesburg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think I can pull it out from the States either. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that wraps up uh, this week's Fin Diesel Insider. Um, thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Mary? Yeah, I think the best place to go is LinkedIn. Mary Wisniewski. Um, I do a monthly newsletter called Fintecking with Mary. So that kind of pulls together all my different stuff in one, in one place. Ruth, where can people find out uh, more about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fox underscore news. That's F-O-X-E underscore news. You must have some unexpected followers. <laughs> <laughs> and Weezer. Yeah, uh, I'm also pretty active on Twitter. My handle is at, at WeezerJ. And you can also email me through social at Weezer.gq. 
which is an email address I have specifically to broadcast on the internet. And as for me, Benjamin and Saw, you can find me on LinkedIn. So thank you all so much uh, for listening. Uh, thank you to my wonderful guest today. Please do join the conversation on social media. Just search for Fintech Insider, or you can even email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you all so much and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>